Welcome to RAGE, the podcast of the University of Denver's Interdisciplinary Research Institute for the Study of Inequality, or IRISE for short. I am the show's host, Tom Romero, and I'm a professor of law and history here at DU, as well as IRISE's director. For those of you that have been following, RAGE explores the risks and rewards of being a critical race scholar in higher education. In an era of black lives, dreamers, the Flint water crisis, standing walk, rock, and vigorous backlash against these movements, everyone is seemingly talking about race. Critical scholarship and public engagement by race scholars in op-eds, blogs, essays, anthologies have often been front and center in these formulations, as has been a resulting backlash or failure to critically engage with some of these insights. In many cases, the work of race scholars has often been marginalized and silenced while policies, practices, and discourses of colorblindness and post-racialism have reigned supreme on our campuses and in our politics. The result has often left race scholars silently raging at the intractability and inability of higher education and our larger society, for that matter, to take racial privilege and an anti-racist discourse seriously. This particular podcast is part of a series of interconnected set of conversations with female scholars of color that explore these tensions in context of a series of books recently published that examine race and gender in higher education. Sitting with me here today is Dr. Manya Whitaker, an Associate Professor of Education at Colorado College, who's also affiliated with the Race, Ethnicity, and Migration Studies program there. She is the co-editor and as well as a contributor to the recently published book, Counter Narratives from Women of Color Academics. Dr. Whitaker is a developmental educational psychologist with expertise in social and political issues in education. Her courses include urban education, diversity and equity in education, and educational psychology, among others. She's the author of Learning from the Inside Out, Child Development, and School Choice. Thank you, Dr. Whitaker, for joining us today. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm good and tired, but I'm good. <laughs> it's, I'm been a, it's been a long day. Um, our, our, our podcast listeners should know she was part of a, a larger panel uh, and conversation about each of these three books. Uh, we will be um, publishing that to our YouTube page. So uh, it's a fascinating conversation. It's an empowering conversation. And I think the spirit of the conversation was really important. Um, it came up during the panel, and one of the, the, my first question for you today is, is if you would share with us and, and our listeners your journey into higher education. Um, and you can start wherever you want. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I always wanted to be a seventh grade English teacher. Um, but when I was an undergraduate at Dartmouth College, I realized that seventh grade English teachers don't make enough money to pay back the loans I was currently accruing. Um, and so in the spirit of an 18-year-old and naivete, I said, well, I can teach in college and make more money. And so I'm going to get a PhD. <laughs> uh, and I did indeed end up getting a PhD in psychology and, um, and a second master's degree in education from Vanderbilt. Um, but I still didn't actually want to be on the tenure track. Um, I wanted to do work with what I call real people, right, in the real world, um, in communities, particularly in marginalized spaces. Um, but, you know, life works out different ways, and the job market is tough, and I, I realized I was overqualified for the jobs I actually wanted to do. Um, and they wouldn't hire me. And they would call and say, we love you, we think you're great, but you have a PhD, and this is a master's level job, so sorry. Um, and so I was kind of forced into academia, uh, even though I didn't want to be, and I, I came to Colorado College as a postdoc, um, just teaching a couple classes those, that, that first year, and I ended up really feeling like, wow, I am, I am a teacher, and I'm enthusiastic about it, and I'm, in, I'm, I'm energized by going to work every Monday, and so here I am eight years later still, still doing it. <laughs> well, it sounds like education's a, a bit in your bones, right, a part of your DNA. Um, 
why seventh grade or why kind of pri primary school? And, and, and was there a mentor or an experience that you had that, that, that galvanized that for you? Absolutely. So it's two, two reasons why seventh grade. One, I loved middle school. All right, I, I think it was one of the best times of my life, and I think I'm one of five people in the world who might say that. <laughs> Maybe six, um, but yeah. But I also, the other reason too is that my kind of mentor and undergraduate, her area of expertise was adolescence. Um, and so taking classes with her, I really got into developmental psychology, got my PhD in developmental psychology, and middle school age kids, early adolescence is my favorite age group, right? It's the point where as a teacher, you can really still get to them and affect change. They're blossoming into who they're gonna be, this like ideal self. And they're also just really amusing kids. And so I still wanna be a seventh grade English teacher at some point. As part of this journey, and as you've described being in, in different sorts of spaces or imagining um, who you wanna be and, and sort of the communities you wanna work with, um, what role has, has race played in, in this journey? It's played a lot. I mean, uh, I went to basically all private white institutions for, for my post-secondary education. And even before that in K-12, I was in an advanced academic track called International Baccalaureate, where I was often the only student of color in those classes. And I was in that from 6th through 12th grade. And so I've always been keenly aware of being the only um, and how that affects the dynamics in a classroom space. And so now as a teacher and a teacher educator, that's basically what I've dedicated my career to, is helping soon-to-be teachers understand the implications of race, class, gender, and all those identities in educational contexts. Um, and as a faculty member at a predominantly white institution right now, I'm always aware of that. There's only about, say, 13 faculty of color out of 163 um, at my campus. And I'm one of now only four black faculty um, at that campus. So I pretty much live and breathe the intersection of race and gender in, in higher ed. Wow. wow. That's at a predominantly white university institution uh, like uh, Colorado College, right? It's, it's who you are. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's important, and as you connect it to your own statement about how you think about your research, um, on your faculty research page, it says you, you research the stability of teachers' diversity-related belief systems, kind of across time and settings. I wonder if you could explain a little bit more about about that. Like, what is a diversity-related belief system, and and the teachers you're talking about, what does that mean mm -hmm. for them? So, as a psychologist, I, I'm very interested in how people think, right? And I'm also interested in how they think and how it affects their behaviors, particularly their teaching behaviors. But I work with my pre-service teachers who are almost all white. Um, every now and then we have one teacher of color, um, I will say, but in general it's about a 90% white population. And my research is really on how do they think about themselves as cultural beings. Um, we ask them about what does it mean to be a teacher of diverse students. Um, uh, how do you, what are your expectations? How do you uh, per perceive Hispanic students compared to black students compared to Asian compared to white students? And so I study about 13 different diversity related constructs, including uh, my self-efficacy for teaching diverse students um, is one of them, my dispositions for teaching diverse students. So all of these get at uh, teachers' values, beliefs, and attitudes related to a lot of different diversity factors. And so I study them at the beginning of their teacher training, I study them at the end of their teacher training, and then my research partner and I followed them into the first three years of their professional practice just to see if we as educators, teacher educators, could have influenced the construction of these belief systems mm -hmm. and then how do they, are they stable or not once they get into the real classroom setting um, and depending upon the demographics and the policies of the schools where they teach. Yeah. 
I, I know there's a body of, of work that I'm familiar with. It's connected to, to your field. It's sort of, it's called sort of legal realism, right? It's sort of the, the connection between law and psycho psychology. Mm -hmm. And uh, for kind of the, the, or the legal behavioralism of people in, in law, um, I know that there's been talk, particularly when it comes to things like implicit bias, stereotypes, um, white supremacy, all these sort of cultural norms um, that sort of create hierarchy and structure oppression come to be hardwired, right, right in, 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 in people's brains, right? Um, so how do, you, how do you deal with that, and, and are there interventions that can be made? Mm -hmm. um, and so we say that they're hardwired, right? But as a psychologist, I say they're learned. And so they can be unlearned. Okay. Um, and uh, in, in our teacher preparation program, we've been very intentional about designing a spiraling curriculum where every course and every practicum experience our teachers have, they're confronted with um, analyzing their teaching practices through a lens of maybe critical race theory, maybe um, critical whiteness studies, right? I'm teaching a class now called Teacher and Teaching Identities, and that's all we do is talk about these theories. We talk about right racial identity development. Um, we talk about social stratification, tracking, and basically how do these theories come to be realized in classroom settings? Because I think the only way to kind of disrupt these really ingrained uh, thinking patterns like stereotypes is to be confronted with con consistent counter evidence. Um, but you have to know how to interpret that evidence. And so I see that as my job as a teacher educator is to give the students the tools to interpret the counter evidence when they, when, when they encounter it in real life. Yeah. I mean, throwing out things like critical race theory, right? White studies, white fragility, right? Yep. Those sorts of yep. terms. Um, how has that been received by the students? Uh, how, do, how do you, and how do you navigate, I would imagine, some pushback and some, yeah. some tension yeah. against it? Um, they actually love it. Okay. They're, they love it. They are open to it. They're enthusiastic. They're excited. They come to class with a list of questions, and they ask for extra readings. Um, and they come and say, hey, can I talk to you more about, what, what's it called, critical race theory? I want to learn more about that abstract liberalism. I want to learn more about uh, the power of counter-narratives and counter-stories. Um, and I think it's because we, and we being adults, we being professors, we being I don't know who, right, we assume that because we don't want to talk about complex and sensitive and hot topic issues that people younger than us also don't want to talk about it. But I'm, I'm enthusiastic and encouraged by a generation of students who openly embrace these conversations. So even at my school where the majority of students um, do come from wealthy backgrounds, they, they are white, they are incredibly open um, to learning, to learning new ways of interacting in the world. That's exciting. It yeah, is. That's, that's good to know. I think it's... Um, do you, do you see these students? Do you think them that this is a generational shift? I absolutely think it's a generational shift. I think that this generation has been raised in a culture of fear, right? The students who are now undergraduates who were born around or right after 9-11 have known nothing but being afraid of terrorism, being afraid of school gun violence. And I think that they, because they've been raised in that kind of culture of fear where we talk about violence and danger, they're just much more open to talking about complex issues in general. Um, and they've been raised in an era where we did have a black president. Um, and so for them, that's a thing that can happen. It's not that surprising. And so I think they have a very different perspective and willingness to, to encounter race and class and gender. Yeah, that, that is inspiring. It's great to hear. Yeah. Um, you talked about counter-narratives. I think this is, a, is an appropriate place to sort of pivot to the book. But particularly in terms of, and uh, sort of coming exactly out of uh, the potential hope for the future, 
Um, I remember being in a conversation a long time ago with someone who said that, that the two oldest institutions in the world are the Catholic Church and higher education. And the reasons, uh, they, they've lasted for long so that, because they're so resistant to right. change, right? right. Um, it's, it's really about maintaining the status quo. So some of the work that you're doing, I mean, and sort of the methodological foundations it's built on, right, mm -hmm. is, is very anti-status quo. And the book, in some sense, right, is, is, is designed to provide a, 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 as it says, a counter-narrative, mm -hmm. right, to what we imagine um, empowerment in higher education looks like, right, right? And, and, and who's, who's both producing the knowledge and transmitting the knowledge mm -hmm. and, and actually getting the knowledge at the end of the day, right? So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about kind of the formation of the book um, and, and how, how the book begins to... to create counter narratives and sort of challenge some of the ways that we think of higher education. Absolutely. I think when, when we talk about women of color in higher ed or people of color in higher ed or women in higher ed, the conversation is generally about how difficult that, that how difficult their careers are. Um, and how women are paid 80% to men's 100%, right? And I, I really am I'm tired of this story. Right? And I, I don't want, when I walk into a room in a conference or at a new institution, people look at me and they say, oh, that's a black woman faculty member, particularly at a PWI. I already know where her experience is. Right? And so I'm really resistant to this idea of others defining me and my experience for me. And so I, when my co-editor and I thought about this book, we really wanted to give women of color the t opportunity to define themselves for themselves and to share a perception or a perspective of women of color that people just are not privy to. And so the book is very much um, uh, an empowerment uh, opportunity, but it's also something that we were strategic about in making sure that the contributors were offering strategies and techniques for women of color to be successful in academia as well. And so, and those aren't the stories that I was even told, right? I was told cautionary tales, don't do this, don't do that, avoid this person, you know, keep your head down and your mouth shut, publish or perish, right? And it's like terrifying. As opposed to telling someone, here's what you can do, here's what you should do, here are the opportunities you should look for to have the career that you want to have. And that's really what Counter Narratives is about, is kind of spinning that lens so that we're focusing on the successes rather than the failures or the trauma that, that women of color do endure in higher ed. Yeah. I, one of the things that came up in the discussion earlier in, in the panel um, was an idea of authenticity. Mm -hmm. um, as you've thought about this collection, what is there an authentic experience, or are there some takeaways that would make make the experience authentic for women of color in particular? I think you know it's interesting. You asked, is there an authentic experience? And and every single one of the authors gave us their authentic experience. And what was beautiful is that they actually weren't that similar. And we tend to be re really reductionist and say, well, you know, black women in the academy have it this way, and native women have these problems. But we saw that across our 28 contributors that they had very different experiences and that the way that they embrace authenticity was very much shaped by what was happening right then and now and who they are as individuals. And so I, I mentioned in the panel that we had someone saying that her version of authenticity was just wearing her hair pink. Right? We had people um, in, the, in, the, in the book saying that their version of authenticity as a Native woman is to not embrace the traditional academic jargon in her manuscripts. Right? which of course means that people aren't publishing them because she's bucking against the conventional ways of talking about community versus I. 
Um, and so it became a, a really educational act for me to see that authenticity means more than like, you know, being yourself and showing up and being who you are, that it's much more nuanced than that. And it can be really small, but powerful. Yeah. How about for you? What, how do I show up and yeah, be authentic? Absolutely, yeah. I think my struggles in higher ed with authenticity have been about what another person brought up at the, at the, at the event about navigating different spaces. You know, I'm from Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, I was raised black Catholic, which most people don't even understand what that means, right? Um, and, and moving to Colorado Springs, straight out of graduate school, really young, I was 25 with my PhD, and taking on this kind of faculty role is that I wouldn't call it imposter syndrome, but I would say I had a hard time figuring out how to create space for myself here that was authentic, yeah. right? I'm not an outdoorsy person. I don't want to do those things. Um, I don't want to teach the traditional psychology courses that I'm supposed to teach, right? So how do I carve out a space where I can bring who I am to work every single day and have that be something that capitalizes on or leverages my pedagogical practice and my research so that I don't have these separate entities that I'm trying to balance at work, at home, or in the community. Thank you. That's one of the biggest challenges, right, yeah. is, is, is navigating these identities and these spaces. And so it made me think, I know you're, you're recently tenured, you're re recently associate. Mm -hmm. Um, and you t you've talked a little bit in, in the panel about the counter-narratives bo book in particular being not necessarily at the center of your academic, what would be counted for, for, for your academic work, right, and, and your research and your scholarship and, and, and your knowledge production. Um, and as you've made this transition now and try trying to think about how to center it, what would you, what would you tell your colleagues first in your discipline, Mm -hmm. um, about the importance of this work and centering it in the space. And I think kind of more generally, what would you tell higher education, like just right. your academic institution about centering this work? You know, in my disciplines in psychology and education, I think I would tell my colleagues, like, we are in the business of people, right? That, and we're in the business of how people think and, and how they're taught to think. And to... And it's important to always bring that humanity into what we're studying. Particularly in psychology, we strip it away because um, we want to be objective and have controlled experiments and randomized trials. And that's just not how life works. And so for me, counter-narratives is a really good example of this is how life actually is. Um, and telling people in higher ed in general, I think it's a larger commentary on the need to, or, or, or the, yeah, the need to understand that everyone's experiences in the academy are not the same. And this idea of equality is something that we need to let go of in favor of equity. Right? And understanding that what people are bringing with them includes all of their prior experiences outside of work, outside of their professional training, and that if we actually want a robust institution, meaning the academy, where we're producing and disseminating cutting-edge knowledge, right, we have to recognize knowledge as socially and culturally constructed, not this objective thing that we just get out of books. That's great. Thank you. A yeah. um, couple more questions. Mm -hmm. Rage is the title of this podcast. As a professor of color, as someone who's navigated, as you've so well articulated, sort of two different spaces, multiple spaces actually, right? As a researcher, as a scholar, as, as um, all the identities that you occupy, what does rage mean for you? Oh, rage. Uh, that's such a big question. I love the name of this, too. When you told me, I was like, that's awesome, right? Because it embodies so much, right? It, it embodies passion. 
Right? I think that's the first word that pops in my mind when someone says rage. It's like it means I'm really passionate about something to the point that I am maybe really upset. Right? And I don't necessarily associate rage with anger. Right? It just for me is passion and a lot of emotionality behind whatever is going on. And so every day I am literally enraged about something. And I have to make sure that I'm interpreting it in my mind as, okay, Manya, what is it that really has gotten you going now, right? And it could be advocating on behalf of students. It could be some policy that I find to be discriminatory, right? It could be someone claiming someone else's work as their own, right? And it just emerges in so many different ways. But I actually think rage is a beautiful emotion because it does help us identify what's important to us. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna collect all these and, and put them together, I think, in a collage, and that's great. Um, final question, and it's really kind of your opportunity to, to offer any sort of final thoughts, reflections, or affirmations that you would like to share with, with our listeners for mm -hmm. this episode. Mm -hmm. um, I think because I, I do focus a lot on people's identity development, that I would encourage people to open up themselves to becoming someone other than who they're prescribed to be. You know, particularly members of marginalized communities. We grow up with these really strict notions of what our family expects us to be, what our community expects us to be, our church, and then, of course, what society expects us to be. And sometimes those things are all the same, and sometimes more often they're not. And I think in having these visions of ourselves in the future, we limit ourselves. Um, and so me moving to Colorado is something I never thought I would do. Um, me enjoying being outside is something I never even thought a possibility, but I take horseback riding lessons. I'm going to start taking golf lessons, right? And I know that it took a change of place to change how I even viewed myself. And so I often encourage people to just take, be courageous and step out and embrace the possibility of being someone you never imagined you could be. Thank you. Yeah. And, and thank you for all, all the wisdom and knowledge you shared with us today. Uh, your book, Counter Narratives from Women of Color Academics, is available for adoption by your school libraries, for adoption by, by courses, uh, and it really sort of helps us rethink power and empowerment uh, in the academy. You've reached the end of another episode of the Rage po Podcast brought to you by iRISE at the University of Denver. Connect with us at www.du.edu forward slash iRISE. While there, don't forget to sign up to our newsletter to hear about our initiative to create new pathways, partnership, and practices to racial justice in Colorado and the Rocky Mountain West. Thank you. Thanks.